Hi, and welcome to another great life impacting message from Bridge Evangelical Christian Church. For more great content and to learn more about our church, visit becc.church. Enjoy. And may you draw us by the power of your spirit. We thank you that we can open your word. We thank you that through your word you draw us to yourself. You stable us, you stable our lives. And in turn, we can understand and have love for what you've done for us. So this morning, my prayer is that we would have a great understanding of how you have drawn us to yourself and we would be so grateful for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. The centrepiece for the message this morning is the same because I'm speaking about God's amazing grace and this is part two. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In, the, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Last time we saw that we were enslaved because we're born of natural sin and that's how we start life. We're lost and we're blind and we're dead in our sins. Many years ago I walked into a workshop and on the workshop wall up there there was a sign and it said, the difficult we can do right away the impossible, just give us a little time. And when I looked at that and I looked at enslaved, lost and blind, yeah, that's, that's difficult. We'll, we'll, the Lord will deal with that straight away. But dead in our sins, he might take a little time to redeem us. So I know I was running the other way, so it took a little time to turn me around. Anyway, it's God's amazing grace. And at that last message we saw we were slaves to sin, completely captured as Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers that they can't see the light of the gospel, as we've just read. We noted that the flesh is hostile towards God, as it tells us in Romans 8, 7. Whether we like it or not, we have to acknowledge, and I was in the same way, unbelievers are on the highway to hell and they do not understand really the predicament they're in. They sail along in life, enjoying life, and don't want to be bothered, and I didn't either. But the Lord Jesus Christ has purchased us out of the slave market of sin with his own blood. And knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, like ordinary slaves, I might add, from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. And I would say I as well. First Peter 1, 18 and 20. It's 
really because of all of God's amazing grace and nothing we can do ourselves. How does the Lord get us out of this mess? Well, the first thing I would like to say, it's no salvage operation. Not at all. If we read Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5, that tells us that it's definitely not. But just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. We note that this was all planned and that it is all of God's will and nothing about ourselves. It's all about salvation and his will for our lives. It's also important to remember that in Romans, or in Roman times, the slaves did not choose their masters, but masters chose their slaves. If not for his purposeful intervention, we would still be helplessly in bondage to sin when we love nothing but ourselves and our sin. God first loved us, such that we might respond to him in faith. The Apostle John explains it this way, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love him because he loved us first. 1 John 4, 10 and 19. In the Roman slave market, um, decisions regarding the slave's future rested solely on those in the hands that done the purchasing, not the ones being sold. In the same way, the Bible teaches that God has chosen his slaves by his own sovereign, independent choice. In fact, he elected them to be his slaves before we were born and even before the world was created. Ephesians 1 verse 4 um, tells us that, chose us before, in him before the foundation of the world. And that he purchased with Christ's own blood, Acts 20 verse 28. And Second Peter says in 1.18, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Silver and gold wasn't good enough to purchase you and I as a people for his own possession. And we who belong to him, not because, <coughs> excuse me, he, because we chose him, but because he chose us before the foundation of the world. I think this speaks volumes about much about God, how he loves us, despite the fact that we would go away, and the fact that silver and gold would not purchase our sin, not purchase the penalty of sin from us, because the word of God says 
without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But I would like to explain one point that the Bible does not teach that God chooses some for salvation and some for damnation. You will not find that in the scriptures anywhere. Someone came to Darrow actually and said, I have a question. Does God send people to hell? And Daryl's answer was, definitely not. Well, he doesn't need to. We do a pretty good job of that on our own. And I can relate to that by always going the other way. In effect, I rejected the gospel because I didn't want it. I was going the other way. And you know, everyone seems to love John 3.16. You hear it quoted quite a lot. For God so loved the world, etc. But they fail to go on and look at verse 18 where it says, He who doesn't believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the Son of God. May I just clarify a couple of things, believing. It's not enough to just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And no, I'm not teaching a Jesus plus religion uh, or gospel, which is not a gospel at all, but a verse always comes back to me all the time from John 1, verse 12, and it says this, To all those that receive him, he gave the right to be God's children, predestined to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ according to his will as it says in Ephesians um, as well. You know, I often wonder, to me this is, uh, we think with our head, we all think we use our brain, and we do. But if we look at Romans 10.10, it says it's with the heart man believes. And I often wondered what sort of a problem it would have been for me if, I had been raised in a church from a baby and always come to church and was taught to believe in God. And so I came always worshipping every Sunday, believing in God and thinking I was saved. When maybe, had I not received the gospel, maybe I had not received the Lord Jesus Christ for myself, maybe it had not dropped from my head to my heart because it's with the heart man believes we confess with our mouth. And of course, our God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart as it says in Hebrews 4 verse 12. And so we can say a lot of things and maybe believe a lot of things. and Even the... Um, it says in the scriptures that the, the demons believe and tremble, but they have no way of being saved. And maybe a lot of people know that Jesus Christ is Lord, but it never goes to their heart. And we could ask the question, where does it leave them? I think the scripture tells us it leaves them lost because they haven't taken it for themselves. Now, Warren Weasby is... Um, someone I follow quite a bit. I have probably most of his books, one or two of John MacArthur's. And they have a similar point of view regarding 
the script what the scriptures say about salvation and that is this all we know is that if a person rejects Christ he is responsible but if a person comes to Christ it's because he was chosen in him before the foundation of the world as proclaimed in Ephesians 1 verse 4 and, and quite a lot of other places at this point I would like to remind you of Romans 11:33, where it says how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways who knows the mind of the Lord and who has been his counsellor? You know, in I don't have a problem with not knowing some things because I know that we have a sovereign God. We have a God that's all loving and caring. He's just. He always keeps his promises. He will always do the right thing. And so if there's some things that I don't understand, it doesn't bother me because I trust him and I think that's what we we have to do I mean when we look at Job Job had lots of things going wrong in his life and he demanded from God an explanation he never ever did get one and so we will never know everything the writer of Ecclesiastes Solomon he says don't bother wrangling with God don't bother questioning him Many words are just futile. And so we can come, if we know our God, we can be completely happy that everyone will be treated fairly. In Acts 2, verse 37, Peter emphasised that the promise of salvation extends to as many as the Lord God will call to himself. And Acts 13, 48 reports that in response to Paul's missionary work, among the Gentiles, as many as has been appointed to eternal life believed. So how does an enslaved, lost, blind and spiritually dead person come to Christ? Oh yes, he calls us, but how does salvation happen? Well, let's go to Romans 10 verse 17 and that says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Oh, you say, well, that's simple enough. Well, not quite. There's more to it than just that. Because if all we had to do was to rock up to somebody's doorstep and say, look, I want to share with you about salvation. This is what the word of God says. What do you think? You're going to accept Christ? Well, the fact of the matter is it's a spiritual thing. But if it worked like that, then we would do all the work and we would boast that we had saved all these people by just sharing the gospel with them and just presenting the evidence and a decision is made. No, it doesn't work like that. So to get a little bit better idea on this, how it comes to pass, if we were to go to the, the book of Acts and chapter 16 verse 14, and here it talks about a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple fabrics, a worshipper of God, and was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now what we note here is that this was a businesswoman who believed in God, who was obviously not saved. She had heard the gospel spoken by Paul, but note that what happened? 
and the Lord opened her heart. And Romans 10.10 once again says, with the heart, believe. This lady would have been an Old Testament um, worshipper, I believe. But by now, Jesus and the cross of Calvary was history and the church age was starting. And so Paul was preaching the gospel and so the Lord opened Lydia's heart so that she could understand. God is the one doing the work. He is the one that calls and reveals the gospel to blind souls. Lydia believed only after the Lord opened her heart to the gospel. You see, new birth never comes by the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but by the will of God, according to John 1.13. Unless the Father draws them, unbelievers cannot come to Christ. When we were bound in our sin, the Son set us free. John 8.36 When we were blinded by unbelief, God shone in our hearts to give us light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the faith of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.6 When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2.5 He is the one who is the one who is initiating every aspect of the work of salvation in our hearts. Such to the point that we can take no credit for anything in our salvation. All the glory goes to him because it's by grace his amazing grace in salvation the triune God sovereignly acts out his will to rescue the unsaved imparting life to dead hearts and sight to darkened minds salvation then does not depend on man's will but God who has mercy Romans 9 This does not mean, of course, that we do nothing. On the contrary, we pray and share the gospel so God will open hearts just like he did Lydia's. And of course, the teaching of sovereign election does not cancel out the responsibility of the sinner to turn and trust Christ as Saviour and Lord. The gospel calls all to faith and repentance, but as we have seen, the sinful heart is hostile towards God and desires to be left alone. Thankfully, God's sovereign grace includes not only the gift of salvation but also the repentant faith necessary for receiving that gift. Ephesians 2.8 says we're saved by grace through faith and that it's a gift of God Quite often we, we see that verse and we see that God's grace is there and we're saved by the grace of God. But how? Notice the word faith is there. And as we can do nothing, we, we don't even have the faith. So the faith is given to us. Either see the faith to believe and accept Christ is also a gift from God. It has to be. It has to be because when we look at the overall picture of the scriptures, 
we see that there's nothing we can do that we can boast. We're blind to it all. There's not a thing we can do. And so God gives us the faith to be saved. John 3.18 says that they are condemned already from walking away. Sinners are wholly responsible, you see, for their own for their own um, situation of rejecting the gospel. And as I said before, John 3.18 says that they're condemned already and walking away from it, my paraphrase. You know, but God alone deserves the credit for the salvation of believers. Having initiated, accomplished and provided everything, including the means by which believers are able to respond to the gospel. Remember, we were dead in our sin. And remember even the story how Jesus called Lazarus forth. In the same way, we're dead in our sin and we are called forth to believe in the gospel. Remember, the Bible teaches that we're lost blind and slaves and dead to sin and we're enmity with God until we're saved. We can do nothing. It's all of God's amazing grace. And James, I believe, is Jesus' brother and he noted that our salvation resulted from the exercise of his will when he brought us forth by the faith of the word of truth, James 1.8. And the author of Hebrews explains it like this. The Son of God came so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. You see, the glorious theme of redemption that believers were purchased by our Lord Jesus Christ through his death is saturated through the New Testament. But unlike the slaves of Roman times, we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from our futile way of life, as it tells us in Peter 1.18. Our redemption is Jesus Christ himself, who in death gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. 2 Timothy 2.14 Our redemption in Christ results in both freedom from sin and forgiveness from, from sin. Or towards the sin. So Paul made it clear in Romans 8.1 Therefore there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Unlike sin, Christ is a perfect master. Sin is the cruelest master and unjust of all. But Christ is the most loving and merciful. He proved that, I believe, when he went to Calvary and while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Our freedom in Christ is not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. It's freedom to live as God intended in truth and in holiness, 
as it says in 1 Peter 1.16. Freedom in Christ is not freedom to do just what we want, but freedom to obey him willingly and joyfully. We could say that we're bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We willingly serve him. And I did mention um, last time I preached about a verse in Second uh, Corinthians that it that it called a bond servant, but really it was bond slave. It was doulos. But really, the translation that we have um, it is a contradiction to the original text. But really, the way it is written up is really accurate because of where we're at as Christians. Um, because we've fr we've freedom in Christ, not freedom to do just what we want, but we've freedom to serve Him. And in doing so, this morning, I guess I could say, I'm a bond servant, a willing servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, that I would share His Word because I don't have to; I could choose not to. And so, that I believe is the description that we willingly serve Him. We are free to do that. Left to our own fallen reasoning, you and I would never have chosen God. I definitely would not have. But prayer is important and I'll cover that a little later. I'm nearly done but I'll cover that a little later. Prayer is important because it was a part of what turned me around. But according to his great mercy he chose us initiating and accomplishing everything for our salvation. In all of this, believers can take no credit because it's all of his amazing grace. We were wholly in bondage to sin, so God intervened by his own sovereign will and rescued us by Christ's redeeming work. We were enslaved, lost, blind and dead in sin and we could do nothing improve our position. That's why God opened Lydia's heart. We, you know, should be so grateful for Christ's redeeming work. He did everything to bring us to salvation. And that's one of the main reasons I'm sharing this with you this morning, so that you would have some understanding of how lost and desperate we were and how much God has done we should be so grateful that he would do that. Praying for the lost is a great job and an important job. So how would, you, how would we pray for the lost? So this morning we understand enslaved, lost, blind and dead. How would you pray for someone like that? Well, let's have a go at it, shall we? enslaved. So first of all, bind the strong man, just like Jesus said in Mark 3 verse 27. That's the first thing we need to do is to bind the strong man that is interfering with the person that you're praying with. They're lost, so pray that God would call that person back to himself or herself. And when they're blind, pray for Satan's blinding effort to be crushed and rendered powerless, and that God would open that person's heart for the gospel. And they're dead in sin. Pray that God would call that person to Jesus as he opens their heart and brings life 
to that soul. If we can work on these principles, our prayers can be more effective. So this morning, as we understand exactly what God has done for us, what the implications are there, we can be so grateful that before the foundation of the world, God chose us in him to be saved. God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But as we know, some people take the broad road, some people take the narrow road. I didn't mind the broad road, but I believe it was prayer that turned me around and God opened my heart like he did Lydia's. And that's what we need to pray for. We need to keep on praying. It doesn't happen immediately. So we should be so grateful ourselves and we should be so mindful how to pray for others. So let's pray. Our loving Father, as we finish our message this morning, I pray that it would embed upon our hearts how much you love us because while we were yet sinners, doing our own thing, going our own way. You chose to redeem us before the foundation of the world. And so might, well, might we be mindful of those that are going down the wrong road. Mindful that you'd prompt their minds to pray for those people and pray for them in a manner effective and we keep on praying. So thank you, Lord that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places and given everything pertaining to life and godliness through our knowledge of him who saved us. Thank you, dear Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.